Hi, everyone. We pray and hope that you all are um, doing well during this Easter season and that we celebrate that Jesus Christ is risen indeed and we say Alleluia. And these are challenging and unprecedented times. Um, but we certainly are a church and a community that is still committed to following Jesus for life. And even though we're not gathered together face to face as you have been experiencing, as we all have been experiencing by technology and virtual community, we are still the church of Jesus Christ. And being the church, we are so committed to worshiping God and studying Holy Scripture. And so we are uh, going to be doing our Bible studies. Pastor Jan and I have been assigned by Pastor Jack um, to, to teach alternating weeks on the new sermon series that Jack will be preaching on titled Crisis, Christ, and You. He'll be preaching uh, this coming Sunday, the 19th of April. And so we'll be looking at the text that Jack will be preaching on, which is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and verses 22 through 24, and Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Let's join together in prayer. Almost gracious and loving Father, we thank you that even in this uh, time of crisis, of this global pandemic, you call us together to be the church of Jesus Christ in uh, virtual ways. But we know, O oh Lord, that even though we are, uh, we are not gathered in a building, we are still your church and your community, followers of Jesus Christ, committed to following the life and love of the risen Lord. Might you, O oh Lord, uh, bless us with the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate understanding you would grant to us wisdom as we open up your word in Scripture. Bless everyone, Lord, who hears and reads your Scriptures and in this study, that all that is said and done would be glorifying to Jesus Christ and that you would edify our hearts and our lives to the glory of God, in whose name we pray. Amen. All righty. And so, again, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 and verses 22 through 24, and then Revelation chapter 22, 1 through 5. Let's hear and receive God's word for us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the, in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the, servant, but the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. 
And then we direct our attention to Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is a tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God, holy wisdom, holy words, and we all say thanks be to God. Well, what can be said of these texts? What can be said of our current context in this very challenging, unprecedented time of COVID-19 coronavirus, this pandemic that has really caused a lot of dislocation and disruption and despair? And this is a crisis. Uh, that, that word crisis is an interesting word. Um, it comes from the Greek word krisis which means decision, um, that its etymology, the, the origin of the word uh, crisis, is it describes a pivotal point, um, often to describe a, a disease that, uh, that there comes a point in, a, in a, a disease where a decision or a judgment is to be made, whether the illness, whether that disease and the one who's stricken with that illness uh, will become better or worse. And so during this unprecedented time, this crisis, this crisis, we, all of us, um, are confronted with a pivot point, with a decision. What is that decision? How are we going to respond? Um, all of us have, you know, been waiting upon um, uh, health officials and, and, and governmental authorities and each day, almost every hour to make a decision whether uh, to well, a few weeks ago, to put an order for shelter in place, um, whether to close particular uh, schools and, and, and workplaces. And we're all eager to, to get back to a sense of normalcy, right? We're all trying to figure out what is the right decision to do? Shall we uh, put on uh, uh, facial masks? Should we put on some eye masks? Um, should we go out um, to buy groceries on this particular day? We are confronted with, with daily decisions. Well, in a time of crisis, when the people of God are, are confronted with a pivot point, what is that decision that is to be made as followers of Jesus Christ? How will we respond? And more so, how is God responding? Whenever we pray, whenever we look in Scripture, whenever we we come together in prayer and plead to God, we're asking God to make a decision and to make a decision that is decisive. God, make a decision to heal us. Uh, make a decision um, that, that you will be for us in this crisis point. Um, some ways um, in which uh, God's people have made a decision um, in times of crisis, uh, for instance, uh, in the outline that I provided, um, is, for instance, in the 16th century, in our beloved Heidelberg Catechism that is divided into three 
uh, three sections, guilt, grace, and gratitude. This is one way that our forebearers in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition have sort of summarized in a very pithy way, in an eloquent way, that in the midst of, of sin, in the midst of our guilt before God, um, God has responded by, by grace, um, by the gift of grace in Jesus Christ, in His Son. So guilt, grace, and then our response is gratitude, um, that we live lives that are committed uh, in works of, uh, of thanksgiving, um, in offering our thanks to God. And so guilt, grace, and gratitude is a, is a nice, eloquent, three-part way of seeing how God responds and how we are to respond to how God acts. In the midst of sin, in the midst of despair, um, God responds with a gift of grace, and we respond in turn with the gift of gratitude, with sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving through our acts of service and through worship. One of my good friends who is a pastor um, in Arkansas um, and who is a, a scholar in Reformed theology and in John Calvin, um, the Reverend Dr. Phil Butin, wrote a, a book, which was his doctoral dissertation that got published on, on Calvin, on John Calvin's theology. And the title of his book is another way uh, to describe the way that God has worked in history from creation all the way to, uh, to history's fulfillment or consummation from Genesis to Revelation. And, and Phil Butin uh, calls this revelation, redemption, and response. That God in Himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God, reveals God's self uh, in Genesis. And because of the trajectory of sin that flows forth from the Garden of Eden, as, we'll, as we've read, in God's self-revealing God's self, God sets out on a trajectory of redemption. That God pursues His people, um, Adam and Eve, and their um, and their children, uh, their, their successors, all the way to Noah and Adam and Moses and indeed the entire, uh, the entire human race uh, in his work of redemption, in his work of reconciliation. And then our response of, of gratitude, our response of thanksgiving, our, our response of, um, of worship. So revelation, redemption, response is another way to describe uh, how God responds and how we respond, how we understand the unfolding, the unfolding uh, history and story in, in Holy Scripture. Now in the 17th century, our uh, Reformed forebearers described it this way in, in, the, um, in the Westminster uh, shorter and larger catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith and, and asking what is the chief end of humanity? What is the point of our human existence? And the Westminster uh, Shorter and Larger Catechism said the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. Right? That our, the, point of all of our, the point of all of our life, even at a time of crisis, that we are made to glorify God and to enjoy God forever in good times and in bad times. And therefore, we are to make a decision to always glorify God and to enjoy God forever, even in the midst of despair, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of distress. 
Now, uh, the late theologian Jeffrey Wainwright, uh, who taught at Duke Divinity for a long while, uh, and who was regarded as really one of the uh, foremost uh, 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 theologians, he's from the, um, from the Methodist tradition, but really regarded in ecumenical circles as a, as a great theologian of the um, latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st century. He wrote this wonderful book, um, regarded as probably his magnum opus, his great book, called uh, Doxology, The Praise of God in Worship, Doctrine, and Life, a Systematic Theology, published in 1980. And uh, Jeffrey Wainwright uh, dis uh, discusses glory, that theological notion of glory uh, from Genesis 1.26. In where uh, Genesis 1.26, as you know, um, uh, speaks about how God creates humanity in God's image, in the likeness of God. And Professor Wainwright looks at those two phrases of image and likeness and how it relates to glory. This is what he says in, in, in his book, Doxology. He says, image, okay, the image of God, expresses the structural possibility of human communion with God. The likeness stands for the existential or, or moral similarity with God into which humanity is to grow as it actually lives in communion with God. Okay, so let's summarize that. To speak that we are created in the image of God uh, expresses that we have the possibility, God gives us the possibility of human communion with God and to be in the likeness of God, okay, speaks about that we are morally similar with God that we are able to grow in the likeness of God as we live in communion with God. In other words, that God gives us not only the possibility to say yes to God, um, to, to follow God, um, but also to live in the morality or what God calls live uh, in holiness for I am holy. Be, be ye holy for I am holy. Okay, and so that's what he says. Uh, Professor Wainwright goes on to say, God's gracious calling of humanity to commune with himself includes the initial and fundamental capacity, the aided progress in time, and the final and eternal realization. Okay, so let's, let's go back. That as God calls all of humanity to be in communion with God, God builds in us the capacity, the initial capacity to do so. And how God aids us, helps us as it progresses in time. As he, as the Lord uh, works in our lives in time until the final and eternal realization. Okay, and so as Genesis 1.26 unfolds, God is issuing uh, the command, the declaration to live in communion and makes a possibility uh, the opportunity for us to do so. Now, Professor Wainwright goes on to say, glory, okay, the word glory is a heavily charged word in biblical and liturgical vocabulary. Mainly predicated of God, it denotes both his character and his reputation, okay? To speak of God's glory is to denote both God's character and God's reputation. Who God is 
and what God desires for all of creation to know about God. Okay, that's what glory is. Glory is, is talking about who is God in God's character and how God infuses his character in creation and that which he has created, namely us, namely human beings, so that his reputation will be known in all of his creation. And so Professor Wainwright goes on to say, upon earth, it is the sign of active presence. Upon earth, it is. It, meaning the glory, is a sign of active presence. God's presence on earth um, shows forth God's glory. And so Professor Wainwright goes on to say, believers may render God's glory by a kind of reflection as they are changed into his likeness from glory to glory. And cross-reference 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And so they glorify God as they grow in conformity with his character. They themselves become glorified. Communion with God, the transformation of the human character according to God's own character, this is experienced as the enjoyment of God. Okay, so to become glorified is to be made in the likeness and to be conformed to the character and heart of God, to be in communion with God, to be transformed in our human character according to God's own character, and that is experienced as we are enjoying and delighting in God. Notice, even in the midst of crisis or in the midst of non-crisis, in the midst of, um, of enjoyment, in the midst of, of peace, in, in both cases, in good and in bad, in times of challenge and in times of not so challenging times, we are to always be in communion with God and to be transformed in our character so that our character uh, is in the likeness of God's own character and that we experience it in constantly enjoying God, enjoying in God's presence, delighting in God. That's what it means to, to, to glorify God. So in short, we can agree with that early church father, St. Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon, uh, second century early church father who observed, and the famous saying, for the glory of God is a living man or the living humanity, and the life of humanity consists in beholding God. Now, this quote from St. Irenaeus has been translated in different ways, like the glory of God is humanity fully alive. The glory of God is, is humanity fully alive, but it's this quote, for the glory of God is a living humanity and the life of humanity consists in beholding God, okay? That God's glory is, God desires that humanity will be alive. Now, how are we alive? By beholding of God, by beholding of God's character in creation. And as God reveals God's self, Remember, revelation, redemption, response, and how God reveals God's self in the midst of crisis. Okay, so with that backdrop, with that notion of glory created in the image of God, God has created the capacity for us to be in communion with God and uh, created in the likeness of God that we are to have the moral and ethical similarity with God's character we now could dive into Genesis chapter 3, 
verses 1 through 7, 22 through 24, which is a familiar scene that unfolds for us. The so-called temptation in the garden or the so-called great fall of humanity. Now notice here in Genesis chapter 3, uh, right? the Lord made humanity. Uh, humanity is the Hebrew Adam, okay, Adam, from, from which we get Adam, okay, humanity or Adam was created from the ground, Adama, the earth, right, or, or the ground, that the Lord made humanity to be in communion with God. Um, God, in, uh, who God is in God's self, God is communal by nature, right, because notice that when God said, let us create humanity in our image. Um, and so God is communal by nature. God is the very archetype of what it means to be a community um, who is loving, who is powerful, who is communal in God's very character. Now, the serpent that we see in, in, in Genesis chapter 3 is the, anti, the antitype of the archetype. So God is the, the living God, the creator God is the archetype of community, right? Let us make, make humanity, make man in our image. The serpent is the antitype, the one who seeks to frustrate that community, the one who seeks to frustrate God, the one who seeks to frustrate God's intentions for community. How does a serpent do that? The serpent does that by turning God's words upside down and twisting it in telling, um, in telling woman uh, to do something that God didn't say. Um, the serpent makes the tree a seductive object, making the false promise. Now notice the the, the promise that the serpent presents, um, this can be more accurately translated or literally translated that you can become as God by knowing good and evil. That you can become as God. And it's interesting because when you go to the Aramaic, the description of the eyes, when the scriptures describe how uh, how the eyes, how Eve's eyes were set upon the tree, okay? It's not just that um, it looked good to the eyes. In our New Revised Standard Version translation, it says um, that the tree uh, was good. Um, it says there, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the Aramaic word can be translated yearning, uh, that the eyes began to yearn. And that it wasn't just delightful. It says uh, in, here in verse 6 that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. The Aramaic can be translated that it was coveting. Okay, so we already see here um, a, a broaching of the commandment. Thou shalt not covet. But here there's already a coveting a coveting of the eyes. Uh, the great 16th century reformer Martin Luther, you know, had a very apt phrase, a Latin phrase to describe self-love in his lecture on, 
on, on Romans, on the Paul's letter to the Romans, and this phrase can be applied even to Genesis. The Latin phrase that Martin Luther describes self-love is, is homo incurvatus in se. Homo incurvatus in se. Uh, which is humanity bending or curving towards oneself. Okay, this is uh, self-love, humanity curving our desires toward ourself. And what occurred in Romans or in Genesis chapter 3, that is, that's unfolding is that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that there is a, a bending towards oneself, self-love, right? The eyes are desiring and yearning, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, bending towards oneself and, and bending towards the created order, towards the tree itself, um, the desire of the eyes and of the heart is bending towards the tree and bending towards the heart, the creature, the created and the creature. What happened to the creator? What happened to the creator? What is happening to the heart and to the mind and to the, and to the soul? And that's where that death is, right? When the Lord talks about that there will be death, it's the death to the to the spirit, the death to the heart, to the, to the communion with God. Uh, that the communion with the Creator, the intention of the Creator was ignored. There is the crisis. There's the crisis, that pivot point. And so what is the decision? What is, this, what is that crisis, that, that decision on the Creator's part, on God's part? And what is the decision on humanity's part? Now we know the trajectory of whenever the human heart and the eyes bend towards the created order, towards, towards the material, towards the physical possessions or the, or the created order or towards ourselves um, and away from the creator, we know what happens. We forget about God. We, we, um, we don't love God as, as, as we ought to. We don't love um, people as we ought to, as we're called to. What's the decision? Well, the Lord expels humanity from the garden. We see that in verses 22 through 24. Um, God places a cherubim, uh, places an, 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 an angelic host to guard entrance into the, into the garden, the, in the tree of life, puts a sword, two-edged sword. We read later in the book of Hebrews, the sword um, is, a, is a, a two-edged that pierces the heart, right? The Word of God, we read in, in, um, uh, in, uh, um, in, in Ephesians, uh, talking about the, 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 sword of the, the sword of the Spirit, right? That pierces the heart, the, the Word of God. Um, and so God's decision, even though that humanity is, is expelled from the garden, as we see later, as it unfolds in Genesis 4 and onwards, that God's decision is to pursue humanity. We see that. God's pursuing Adam and Eve and, and their children, Cain and Abel and Seth and all the rest. God's pursuit of humanity is an unrelenting compassion. God's steadfast love, notwithstanding humanity's pursuit to curve towards the self or towards created things. My good friend Craig Barnes, who's president at Princeton Theological Seminary, he, wore, he wrote a wonderful book called Searching for Home, where he talks about the difference between being a nomad and being a pilgrim. 
Being a nomad is one who, who wanders aimlessly, not knowing the purpose, uh, too frightened to be grateful. Pilgrims, on the other hand, are always at home with God. Even though pilgrims travel from point to point, place to place, from one crisis to another, pilgrims are always at home with God because God is at home with God's people. And a pilgrim is aware, beholds God's presence, God's promise, and God's power to save. Let me repeat that. Pilgrims behold that we are at home with God even as we sojourn from point to point, place to place, point of crisis to crisis, because we are called to behold God's presence, God's promise, and God's power to save and to help. Now, what unfolds for us after Genesis 3 and throughout time, and even in our present time, where, whereas our tendency and proclivity in our heart is to bend towards ourselves, the homo in, incurvatus in se, bending towards ourselves, repentance means to curve away from ourselves to bend toward or to curve toward who? Toward God. That's what repentance is, right? To turn away, to turn away from our tendency to bend or to curve toward ourselves, and to turn towards God, okay? To tend towards God, to love God, of course, to love ourselves in a healthy way and to love one another. So God calls us to repent continually, to call us to remember and to recommit to his intentions for who we are and why we have been created, which is to be in communion with God, to enjoy God, to love God, to love one another with thanksgiving, which is the heart of worship. Thanksgiving, which is the heart of worship. Remember guilt, grace, gratitude, revelation, redemption, response? Thanksgiving is the heart of worship. And so that's, why, that's now where we jump to Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Revelation 22, or first the book of Revelation, which is uh, to believe to be written by the Apostle John, the Apostle John, uh, uh, brother of James, son of Zebedee, writing in exile, or perhaps God-directed quarantine, uh, uh, John uh, writing in the uh, latter half of the first century A.D. on the island of Patmos, wrote this letter, the book of Revelation, in a poetic form. Okay? It was written in a poetic form with a lot of imagery. And we could have a whole series of Bible studies on the book of Revelation, but um, it's sufficient to know that the book of Revelation is written in poetic form as a liturgy for the church's worship. That's why there's a lot of images, dragons and, and the, the, the so-called four horsemen and all of these images in order for the early church as followers of Jesus Christ uh, to live in hope. Okay, it's, it's sort of like the it's like the, uh, the prophets of old or the Psalms, all of these images in order to drive the imagination to holy worship. As the followers of Jesus Christ in the first century were confronted with external and internal challenges to the faith. As the Roman Empire was persecuting the church, uh, 
the great persecution, the great destruction, the ransack of, of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, and so as the early church was, you know, was in, uh, was, was across the, the Mediterranean and was, you know, was flourishing, there was great persecution, external and internal. The onset of heresies were, were proliferating. And so the early church needed um, a message of hope, a message of promise. So Revelation is about that, is about uh, uh, telling and sharing and describing in very vivid imagery, in vivid ways, uh, what God has been up to, the spiritual warfare that is occurring um, in, a, in another dimension, in, uh, uh, in heaven and on earth. And so Revelation 22 uh, closes with this image, this uh, St. John is, is almost given a mini tour of the throne of God and of the Lamb, this heavenly vision of, of the heavenly city, the dwelling place where there is the tree of life. In other words, being in the very presence of God where there is light, where there is healing, the vision of communion with God and and the communion that creation has with God, God's intention from uh, way back from the beginning is now complete and is being made complete. Uh, this is a message of hope, a message of faith and of, and of love. One of my former colleagues, the late um, Reverend Rabina Winbush, who was the ecumenical officer of the Presbyterian Church USA, she had uh, devoted her, her ministry to uh, to working for the, the visible unity of the body of Christ in, our, in, our, in the midst of theological differences and brokenness in the, in the body of Christ. And in 2006, she had uh, preached in the closing worship service of the World Council of Churches Assembly in Porto Alegre in, in Brazil. And she was preaching from Revelation 22 in this text, and she asked uh, the, the global assembly this pointed question. Will you be one of the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations? Will you be one of the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations? There is the point of decision. That in this COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, this is a pivot and inflection point in our generation and for our time. Will you, you and I, will the village church, and anyone who is watching and listening to this Bible study, will you and I, will you, and how will you and I be a leaf as part of that tree for the healing of the nations? But remembering this, the leaves are sustained in their life by being connected to the tree of life. Because we are always at home with God. Because God dwells and abides with us. When we behold that vision and that reality that the God who abides with us, the God who abided with Adam and Eve and humanity, then we discern the glory of God and what it means to be alive. What it means to be alive even now in the midst of this crisis. There is dislocation. But God is located right here, right now, in the midst of God's people, in the midst of God's creation. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Most gracious and loving God, we thank you 
We thank you that you abide with us from point to point, from place to place, from crisis to crisis. You call us to decide for you every single day to follow you, to love you, to love one another. Because you have decided, O God, in eternity to be for us, to be with us, to be with us in the person of your Son, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the power and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so help us, Lord, to be a part of your transformation, to decide, O God, to be part of the healing of the nations, to recommit, O God, as you continue to conform our hearts, our lives, our character after your own. We praise you and we glorify you. For it is in the name of Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ we commit this study and our lives to you. And all God's people say, Amen and Amen.